Well, good morning, church family. Happy Sunday to you. It's a beautiful Lord's Day. Happy Halloween as well, although that's kind of just a nighttime thing, but it feels weird to say happy Halloween in the middle of the day. But happy Halloween tonight. I hope you'll enjoy the festivities there. If you guys are planning on doing anything with your families, I know Main Street here in town had their big thing last night, but I'm sure there'll be some people knocking on your door, hopefully just knocking, not egging. Um, I hope you have a nice evening. It is, uh, you know, it's, it's purely the preacher's prerogative. I can preach whatever I want to preach. You can't stop me. All right. So if it's a holiday that either falls on or around a Lord's Day, it's just, it's always been my nature to want to cover that in some capacity or another. Most people are thinking about it, making plans around it. It's on their minds anyway. So why not lean into that instead of swimming against the stream like the salmon, I think, and then swim with the stream like the tuna. I don't remember how it went. But you see, you, you roll with with the thought processes of the people. So it's a very rare occurrence. It doesn't happen, but just and once every several years that the Lord's Day and Halloween would coincide on the same day. So I know you're all thinking about it, so let's just lean into it. Let's talk about the things that we are afraid of. Now let's start with this. Every year, around late August or so, the Discovery Channel runs a week-long extravaganza. It's simply entitled Shark Week. And people go bananas for this thing. It's all over online and talking about it and exciting for it. And when it's going on, there's all kinds of conversations about it. I don't get the appeal. But people love to talk about Shark Week. Now, I'm going to say this having only done the scantest amount of research. Okay, so don't nobody hold me to any of my facts and figures. But just doing a little bit of research, I've noticed that in the years since Discovery started Shark Week, the amount of people who are willing to tell surveyors that they're afraid of sharks has gone up exponentially. Now, I'm not saying that it's the number one fear. That's still public speaking. The number two fear is still death. But somewhere in the range where it used to not be at all is now a place reserved for shark. Shark attack, death by shark, or any other derivative thereof. So people are afraid of sharks, and I want to contribute a lot of that fear to a week-long talk about it on the Discovery Channel. But I have some news for you. If you're one of the people who says to a surveyor, why you would admit it, I don't know, that you're afraid of being eaten by a shark in this landlocked state of Arkansas. If that's something you're afraid of, let me tell you, statistics prove that more people are killed by a vending machine falling on them that are killed by sharks in the United States of America. In other words, you have more of a chance to be crushed by a Pepsi machine than you do by a shark of any kind or persuasion. All right, so let that be your fear. Let that be your dread. It is also the case globally that more people die every year of a hippopotamus attack than die by shark attack. (laughs) We play the game. It's fun. We like to draw them. They're fun to look at, but they are deadly, deadly creatures. Sharks, they are not. And yet we don't have hippo week. We have shark week. I'm getting that. I'm getting there, though. In fact, just yesterday, I'm not making this up. Preachers love to make up stories. I'm not making this one up. Just yesterday, I read about a man who rescued a newborn baby hippopotamus from a river. This was in like Africa or something. Raised him for 10 years. And then that hippo at the age of 10, having no other connection to anyone but that guy who rescued him, killed him, drug him to the river, and ate him. Hippos, ladies and gentlemen. Not the kindest animals on the block. And yet we don't have hippo week. We have shark week. You are more likely to die from an infection, from an abscessed tooth in the United States of America than you are from a hippo attack. And yet we never hear about that 
Are you brushing and flossing regularly? See, that's something you can control. You can't control a shark attack, but you don't even need to fear a shark attack. You need to fear an abscess tooth. I say all that to say this. Shark Week is a con. And I'm starting to think it's been conspired by Steven Spielberg to, to drum up interest in a movie from 40 years ago. That's Shark Week, and people are afraid of sharks. But you need not be. Now let me say this before I actually get to the Bible. When I'm on an airplane, please do not tell me, don't worry, because more people die every year in car crashes than in plane crashes. That brings me no comfort. I'm getting in a car next. So I don't know why people think that makes me feel better, because it makes me feel none better at all. Because the plane ride is only a few hours, but I'm driving in cars all the time. So there are things that you can tell me. There are things that you can tell a person who might never think about being afraid of. And now suddenly I'm going to start thinking about those things, and suddenly I'm going to start being afraid of those things. There are things that we fear, like getting slapped in the face and being unable to control the physical reaction that comes from it, being unable to respond in any way other than to have physical pain. You can try to be a tough guy as much as you want, and it can hurt less or more depending on how tough you are, but if someone slaps you in the face, your body's going to react, you're going to feel it. When you are scared, your body goes through several involuntary responses. There are things you cannot help but be afraid of. When you're all alone at the house, and it's dark in the middle of the night, and you hear uh, the creaking of your stairs, you will feel fear. That is human, that is normal, it is uncontrollable. There are all kinds of things that if you ask people, what are you afraid of, they would quickly rattle off their answers. Some of them are common, we share them. Some of them are individual, we make fun of them. But all of us have those things that we fear. Now let me give you some Bible before we get to the actual sermon. Let me give you just a little bit of background to um, the sermon. Or at least the background to the idea that we're going to delve into in the sermon. In Isaiah chapter 8, we had the reading just a minute ago, uh, verse 13. But let's back up a little bit and get the context here. The context is Isaiah preaching to the nation of Judah, uh, and specifically to the leadership of Judah. A nation which is under the constant threat of an Assyrian invasion. The Assyrian Empire has already made a very aggressive moves all over the region. They're, they're inching their way down south toward the kingdom of Judah. And being afraid of Assyria, Judah is looking left and right and north and south and everywhere they can to try to make alliances, what this Bible version will call it is a confederacy, but the word is alliances, try to make alliances with these other nations around them in the hopes that they can all team up together, have a big enough defense force to push back Assyria. Now that is a normal, human, common thing to fear if you're a government is an attack by another government, another nation. It is a normal, common, human kind of response for fellow people who are afraid to band together to try to defeat that fear. The problem is the attack by Assyria is orchestrated not just by Assyria and their king Sennacherib, but by God and his providential directing, which means you can make all the alliances you want. It's not going to matter. So gather yourselves together, Isaiah says. It's not going to do you any good. Because here's what God has said to me. Everybody who, who is trying to run around screaming, saying, all we need is an alliance, all we need is a confederacy, all we need is to team up, it is not going to work. He says, you can put on all of your armor, it's not going to work. You can gather up all of your weapons, it's not going to make a difference. You can, you can scheme together with all of your wise men. You can come up with the best battle strategy, the best tactic, the best plan. It will all come to naught. You only need to fear God. 
But they're not looking at God. Their eyes are lower. They're looking at Assyria. And so Isaiah says, here's what God has said to me. To all the people who say a confederacy, don't, don't even bother saying a confederacy. To all the people who are screaming the solution is just to team up with other people who are just as afraid as we are, all you're doing is doubling down on the problem. You're doubling down on the fear of things in this world. See that God is behind the scenes. Lean on him and God will take care of you. And that leads us to the verse that was read to us. Sanctify the Lord God of hosts. Set God apart over everything else. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. If you take God and you regard God as the one and only thing that you ever need to, and I'm going to use this in the worldly way we use the phrase, worry about. All right? If God is all that you are preoccupied with, if God is all that is on your thought process, if God is all you're thinking about, then you will have nothing to fear. That doesn't mean Assyria won't still come. That doesn't mean the enemy won't still attack. That doesn't mean you may not still be hurt. You may even yet die. But if God is all you fear, you have nothing else to fear. In fact, there's a wonderful quote from a couple hundred years ago by a man named uh, Oswald Chambers, I think it was. Yeah, Oswald Chambers, who says, The funny thing about God is if you fear God, you fear nothing else. And if you don't fear God, you fear everything else. If you do not fear God, if you have no respect for the power and the majesty of the Almighty, the creator and master of everything, then everything becomes a potential thing for you to worry about. I didn't think at all about an abscessed tooth until I started doing research for this sermon. And then now that's all I can think about. I'm going to have to brush twice a day, which I've never done, despite what my mother begged me to do. Because now I have a thing to fear. No, I joke. Because I, I fear God, so I don't worry about my teeth. But you can see how a person might have that attitude. If I don't fear God, who is the maker of everything, then anything could be something that hurts me. Anything could be something that attacks me. And so now I'm worrying about every possible thing. But you can take all of those things that exist in this world, any one of which, or multitudes of them, could be a potential problem for you. And you can put them all in a bushel, and you can give them to God, and you can say, you made all these things, please take care of me. It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean problems won't still happen. It's not, it doesn't work like that. It means, I trust you, God, who made these things, to see me through these things. I trust God who gave me these things, whether they're good or bad, to have a purpose behind the giving them, whether it's good as a blessing or whether it's bad as an opportunity to grow and to, to be strengthened. I trust you to see me through. And if that's our attitude, then we'll suddenly not fear these things. We'll see them as opportunities to grow. We'll see them as reasons to trust even more. Is that our attitude? It's easy for me to get up here and say it and for you guys to nod Nod along and wait for the Mexican food here in a little bit. But are you really hearing what I'm saying? Do you really fear God and nothing else? Because there are some things that if you ask people, commonly they would say they fear. Specifically, if you polled Christians, there are some things that my brethren will quickly admit to being afraid of. So what do you fear, brethren? Do you fear death? Do you fear judgment? Do you fear the devil himself? Do you fear persecution? Do you fear prosecution? Do you fear the things you can control? Do you fear the things you cannot control? And those are more personal and specific to you. Let's take those quickly. Walk them through one at a time. Do you fear death? I mentioned it just in passing a minute ago. It's the number two fear 
that the United States of America uh, claims. Number one is public speaking. And I, I know you heard the joke. People would rather give the eulogy than be the guy in the box. They were, they, that's, how, that's how terrified we are of public speaking. But number two, right there with the neck and neck, is death. And I can understand, we can all understand why someone would be afraid of death. And I don't mean just suddenly if something happens, jumps out at you at night and suddenly you're afraid because they might kill you. But I mean the contemplative when you're at peace and you think about it and then you start dwelling on it and you are afraid of death. That kind of fear. It boils down basically to the fear of the unknown. I've never died. And I can read accounts and I can study and I can learn and I can have faith, but I've never experienced it. And that fear of the unknown is just primal and I can't get rid of it entirely. So it's something I personally am always going to be bothered with. I'm always going to be nagged with or nagged by even as much faith as I have in God and as much faith as I have in life beyond this one. I have no frame of reference and that bothers me. So I can have some, I can't, I shouldn't, but I do have some a modicum of fear of death in the form of the unknown but i can remind myself of some things the bible says look at second uh, corinthians 1 verses 8 through 10 second corinthians 1 verses 8 through 10 listen to what paul says as he talks about it's persecution and, and hardship but death is on his mind second corinthians 1 8 we would not have you brethren to be ignorant about our trouble which came to us in asia how we were pressed out of measure uh, pressured persecuted literally out of measure above strength in so much as we despaired even of life in other words we had the idea as we were going along and preaching and serving and we were being persecuted for it that we thought you know this might kill us we might die doing this verse 9 we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves but in the god who raises the dead who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us in whom we trust that he will deliver us. In other words, yeah, we might die. They might not just hurt us, they might end us, but we have trust in the God who starts us over. We have trust in the God who will get us up. We have trust in the God who made life, and if he can make it the once, he can make it the twice. You may kill me. I'm going to shrug it off one day. And that gives me some degree of confidence, some degree of faith, some degree of peace as i fear the unknown and death is the ultimate instigator of that here's some here's another thought to go along with that here is the source of your confidence and your victory in jesus christ over death first corinthians 15 55 through 57 as paul says oh death where is your sting oh grave where is your victory the strength of sin is the law the sting of sin uh, the strength of well shoot now i forgot what it said the sting of death is sin the strength of sin is the law but thanks be to God who gives us the victory. What victory? In this context, over sin and death. The victory through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You might have a fear of death, and you might be willing to admit that fear. Well, guess what? That puts you among the majority. But if you're a Christian, you have victory over death. Well, you haven't died yet. You have victory in advance for when you will die. Victory over death doesn't mean you won't die. It means when you die, you'll get up again you have that through jesus christ therefore what is there even to fear maybe what you fear is not death but judgment which follows death maybe what you fear is your own relationship with god and how it is lacking in that case you have something to fear listen to second thessalonians 1 7 through 9 as the apostle paul talks to the thessalonian church who are being persecuted who are being threatened with death but he, he frames it, he turns it around on those who are doing the hurting of them. Second Thessalonians 1, starting in verse 7. 
To you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, those people, shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Those people, and the ironic thing is, they're the ones who don't fear judgment, but those are the ones who stand to face the worst of it. And so if your attitude as a Christian is, I'm afraid of what God's going to say to me when I stand before him, well, are you in Jesus Christ? Have you lived faithfully? Not perfectly, but are you just trying to try to try your best? Are you trying to live faithfully for Jesus? If so, you're going to be fine. But if you're not, well, then yes, you have something to fear. And I can't help that. But on the other side of the coin, if you are someone who is living faithfully for Christ, doing your best, trying to get by through Jesus and his guidance, then he will say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Not good and perfect, good and faithful. Enter into the joy of the kingdom set before you. That's judgment scene. And that's for you if you're a faithful Christian, in which case that's nothing to fear. In fact, that's something to look forward to. So what do you fear? Do you fear persecution? Let's go to the uh, first Peter. Excuse me. We'll go to Acts in a second. Go to first Peter chapter two and listen to what the apostle says about those who persecute you and what that means to you from your perspective. First Peter two, starting in verse 20. For what glory is it when you be the King James says buffeted, beaten down for your faults, punished for your faults. You take it patiently. Pause. What is he saying? What good does it do if you're guilty and you do your time? If you did wrong and you're punished for it, that does you no good. So you don't get to brag when you get out of jail for doing the crime. You don't get to brag and say, I did it. Everyone give me a round of applause. I did my time. You're not getting a cookie for that. You did wrong and you got punished for that. That's not the point here. Next, verse, next clause is the point here. But when you do well and suffer for it and you take it patiently, that's acceptable to God. What does it matter if you do evil and you're punished for doing evil? That's nothing. But if you do good, if you try to live faithfully and the world attacks you for it, and you respond to that attack, not with violence in kind, not by turning away from Christ, but by doubling down on your Christianity, then that is acceptable to God. Nowhere here does it say, you who are a Christian are now free from having to be punished. You who are a Christian are now free from having to suffer. Now that's not how it works. When you are a Christian, expect more suffering. You think, well, then I shouldn't be a Christian so I can have no suffering. No, the world's still pretty bad. People still suffer out there, and they have nothing to live for after it. But I am a Christian, so I have something to live for after it. Why? Because he left me an example that I should follow in his steps, Jesus did. He also suffered the just for the unjust. He also suffered having done nothing wrong by people who hated him because he did nothing wrong. Because he was living right. And he left me the example. Not just the example of, if I do right, I'll suffer. Not just the example of, if I do right, I'll suffer, but it'll be pleasing to God. But the example of, if I do right, I'll suffer, and that's pleasing to God. And even if they kill me, I will rise again. So I don't need to fear persecution. What about prosecution? Do I need to fear when my government, for an example, bears down on me? and threatens to take away my livelihood, to take away my home, to take away my source of income, to take away my means of living comfortably in this life. Look at Acts 4, 17 through 20. This is Peter and John having started preaching the gospel, having started preaching the message of Jesus. They witnessed him resurrected. They saw it. 
And so they did what anyone would do. They started telling everybody about it. And about 500 people saw the resurrected Jesus. And the message starts spreading. And now the leaders of the community want to tamp it down. Uh, Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 17. So they're saying amongst themselves, so that it spread no further among the people, let us immediately threaten them that they don't speak any more to any man about Jesus. And they called them and they commanded them, that's Peter and John, not to teach or preach any more by the authority of Jesus Christ. And Peter and John said, I mean, whether you want to punish us or not, that's up to you. That's your prerogative. You're the leaders. You want to throw us in jail? You want to beat us 40 times with, with a whip? Whatever you want to do, that's your business. But we cannot but speak the things that we have seen and heard. I have witnessed Jesus' resurrection, Peter says. I have seen him ascend to heaven, John says. You are not shutting us up. Now, you can threaten us. You can follow through with those threats, and that's your business, and you'll give an account to that. But I am not going to stop talking about what I know is truth. Jesus rose. So I am not going to, by their example, I am not going to fear prosecution. Because what is the worst the government can do to me? Throw me in jail? Well, I've, I've seen the example of what happens when Christians go to jail. We do a lot of singing. We do a lot of reading. We do a little light, reading, light writing. And that's it. What are they going to do? What's the worst they can do? Kill you? As we've already established, that's an express lane to Jesus. You cannot win. You cannot defeat me. They arrest Paul. What did he do? He wrote the New Testament. They killed Paul. What did he do? He got his reward. You can't beat us. You can't stop us. You can't ruin us. You can't end it. That's why the message kept spreading, despite the fact that the government was prosecuting it. It kept spreading because the blood of Christians is the seed of the gospel itself. So I don't fear prosecution. I fear God. I fear what he'll do to me if I don't tell people about his message. What do you fear? Do you fear the things you cannot control? Go to Psalm 115. Psalm 115. What are the things you can't control? You can't control a storm in the night. That's the little thing. That's the thing that affects a child. You can't control what another person will do to you. All you can control is what you'll do in response. There are lots of things that are big and dangerous and scary and evil in this world. And sometimes they're coming for you. And you can't control that. And that feeling of helplessness, that feeling of, of anxiety, when you think about what everybody else could be trying and plotting to do to me, that can cause fear. I get it. It's something I can't control. But listen to the psalmist, Psalm 115. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name give glory for thy mercy and for thy truth's sake. Wherefore shall the heathen say, where is your God now? As they're beating you down, as they're attacking you, as they're persecuting you, as they're prosecuting you, as they're trying to destroy you, as they're trying to drive your faith out of you, and then when you're at your breaking point, when you're at your lowest point, when you feel like giving up, then they will point at you and they will mock you and they will mock God in front of you and they will say, look how much you have been hurt, where's your God now? And that is not just a statement that your enemy will make to you. It is sometimes a statement you'll make to yourself as you're being beaten down, as you are at your last leg, as you cannot go any further into the ditch, you may say, where is my God? And here's the answer. My God is in the heavens. Always has been. He's not moved. He's not gone. My God is in the heavens. And he does what he pleases. 
But look at you, Christian. You're on the floor. You've been beaten down. Does your God not see? He sees. Is your God happy about that? No, but it says it pleases him. It does, because my God has perspective. And he's trying to teach me perspective, too. Here's perspective. I'm being beaten down right now. I will live with him forever. My suffering in this life is what, 70, 80, 90 years? I almost said if we're lucky, but is that even really lucky? Because that's just lingering in this terrible world for that much longer. Because sooner or later it will be over, and then when it's over, it is forevermore with God. In the heavens where he is. My God has perspective. My God can see me suffering and say, if you hang on, if you're faithful, when you come out of it, because you will come out of it, the storm always ends eventually. The bully always walks away eventually. When you come out of it, you will be stronger. You will be more faithful. You will be harder, your skin thicker, so that you can endure the next round, because there will be a next round and a next round, because the devil is relentless and he does not quit. So you have two options. You can either run away from God or you can run to God. And if you run away from God, you're finding yourself afraid of everything else. If you run to God, you're not even afraid of the first thing. Because God is all you have. God is all you need. And God will take care of you. Where is your God now? Same place he's always been. He's in the heavens. And this is fine. Because he'll see me through. What about the things that you can control? Go to James. And look at the tail end of James 5.16 to start with. What can you control? You can control your response. You can control what you're going to do to hard times, to difficult circumstances. And I know I said you can't turn off the thunderstorm, but you can pray for rain. James 5, look at the end of verse 16. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man who was subject to the same passions that we are, not a perfect person, flawed, capable and susceptible of thinking God has rejected him, that he's all alone, as we can sometimes be. And he prayed earnestly that it might not rain. The context is he's the prophet of Israel. They've sinned. He's punishing them by God's decree so it doesn't rain for the space of three years and six months. And then he prays again, and the heaven brings forth this rain, and the earth brought forth its fruit to the land. Here's a guy who felt at times. We studied this a few months ago, 1 Kings 19. Here's a guy who felt that God and everybody else, that he was all alone, that he was about to die. He was afraid of death. He was afraid of rejection. He was afraid of himself and his own fears. And the angel had to him and say, get up, get something to eat. We have work to do. And he did the work that God told him to do, and he felt better. Why? Because he didn't wallow. Because he didn't have defeated attitude. He said, I trust God will see me through. And the prayer of that man who trusted God was answered. Answered doesn't mean here's a yes Answer sometimes means no. Answer sometimes means wait. Answer sometimes means, are you kidding? Have you matured at all? Why are you even asking for that? God will answer it in his own way. Your job is to trust him. Listen, when the storm is raging outside and you're scared, what do you do? We say to our children when they were little and they're scared of a storm, as every child is, we say, it's going to be okay. We have perspective. We know storms don't last forever. You say a little prayer and it'll be all right. And then we come back, or they come to us in the middle of the night, and they say, it didn't work. What didn't work? Because I'm half delirious. What didn't work? What? It's 3 a.m. What didn't work? The prayer didn't work. Prayer doesn't work like that. Prayer is not an on-off switch. God sometimes does turn off the storm. Don't misunderstand. More often than not, he lets the storm keep going, and he strengthens you. He turns off your fear. 
What did God, yes, yes, I know, famously, God says, peace be still, and the peace stopped. There was the other time when he just walked through it, and the storm kept going until they got on the other side. There will be times when the storm is raging. Do you know what happens when a little child gets out of bed when the storm is raging? His half-asleep mother lets him sleep in the bed with him when he's five years old. And he curls up, and the same storm that got him out of bed, the same storm that terrified him, the same storm he could not stop, Suddenly it doesn't matter. He's sleeping sound. Why? Because he's in the arms of his mother. Or he's in the arms of his father. If you fear God, and what that means is if you trust that God is stronger than anything, you won't fear the storm. The storm is still out there. But you trust God is bigger than it because God made it. He will see you through the night. Which takes us to our last point. The enemy of God and man. Do you fear Satan? On the one hand, this is a very normal, reasonable thing to be afraid of. The devil is a very smart being. He's a very old being. The devil's been around from the moment you came into this world. And as he has with everybody, he's targeted you. He's coming after you. He knows you. He observes you. He can get inside your mind. He can influence you through the world around you. He can affect the way you think. He can affect what you do. He can affect the way you perceive the world around you, perceive your potential relationship with Christ. The devil's not your friend. The devil is your enemy. The devil wants you to die. The devil wants you to perish and not rise again. He wants you to burn forevermore. I totally get being afraid of the devil. Here's the thing. If you knew everything he could do to you and you could study it up and be prepared for it, suddenly he's not that scary. His potential is there but the devil can't make you run away from god the devil can't make you leave the devil can't make you give up all he can do is offer it to you and lie to you and promise you a carrot when he's actually giving you a stick but we're not ignorant of his devices we know all of his schemes we've read them up we've seen how they work we've seen what stops them and we're going to trust in god who made him too we're going to trust in god and we're going to be okay. So what is your relationship with yourself this morning? With yourself this morning? Are you afraid of persecution, of prosecution, of things you can or can't control? Are you afraid of the, the difficulties that life brings you? What are you afraid of? Are you afraid of death itself and judgment that follows? What's your relationship with God like? Because if you trust God, if you make God the only thing that you consider when you're afraid, then you'll have nothing ever to fear because God is on your side and nothing else is. So if you're here this morning and you're someone who has succumbed to fear, if you're here this morning and you're somebody who feels like you have given up because you've let the hardships and the difficulties and the storm that's raging outside stop you from trusting in the one who can help you, if that's your position this morning, if that's your condition this morning, we want to help you. All we can give you is encouragement and a way that points you to the God who can make you better, who can strengthen you through the storm. What's your need this morning? Do you need God? We want to help you find Him. We want to help you see the Lord. Whatever it is, please let us know your need. Right now as we stand and as we sing.